I'm going back to Minnesota, where sadness makes sense, by Denez Smith. Oh, California, don't you know the sun is only a god if you learn to starve for her? I'm over the ocean. I stood at its lip, dressed in down, praying for snow. I know, I'm strange. Too much light makes me nervous. At least in this land, where the trees always bear green, I know something that doesn't die can't be beautiful. Have you ever stood on a frozen lake, California? The sun above you, the snow and stalled sea, a field of mirror, all demanding to be the sun. Everything around you is light and it's gorgeous and if you stay too long, it will kill you. It's so sad, you know. You're the only warm thing for miles, the only thing that can't shine. This is the WTIP Boundary Waters podcast. This is the wilderness that Dave and I were both introduced to as kids. You know, our first wilderness camping experiences were in the Boundary Waters. And in summer, you wake up, you swim through the lake, you have breakfast, then you can relax, you can go paddling, you can go hiking. We've done this trip before to Horseshoe Lake, and I remember catching walleye there before. I went on a canoe trip in the Boundary Waters, and it's, it was really cool. It was my first time. The route from Ram Lake back to Poplar Lake with, with no packs, with, with only a day pack, uh, we take it in one day. Well, you can look to Venus, you can look to Mars. I will set my sights by the northern star and in the deep dark blue. Come the northern lights Oh, and in the deep dark blue Come the northern lights Well, one place to start is just to consider what a dramatic, global change, transformation it is when winter comes. In the northern hemisphere, I believe it's around 19 million square miles that freezes. I mean, just the transformation of the landscape in terms of how we terrestrial beings occupy it, move around on it, both how we move, but where we can move, and um, and with accompanying hazards. I mean, this just expands kind of our whole experience of life. It also means that we're cut off in a whole different way from all this world underneath the, the ice. But just because we can't see it, um, life is going on and, and other living things are living their lives um, in that world. And I, so that's one of the things I really love about being out in the winter is thinking about not just what I see on the surface through the tracks, and, but also what I can learn about, if I can't observe it directly, what I can learn about is going on every bit as much as I think about that when I walk through the forest and I'm going, oh my gosh, there's billions of lives <laughs> you know, right underneath my feet. And the same is true out there under the ice. Welcome to episode 60 of the WTIP Boundary Waters podcast. I'm here with your host, Matthew Baxley. And I'm with Joe Fredericks. Nice to see you, sir. You too. You took my opening line. Well, it's this howling wind outside that got to me today. It's just uh, making me do strange things. 
It is gusty. I spent two hours shoveling this morning, Joe Fredericks. <laughs> I had a terrible experience with the snowblower. Uh, I've been through some serious snowfalls in the winter of 2021-22, and this one, by comparison to depth accumulation in one event, was marginal. There's maybe five inches of new snow. But the wind was just whipping it into my face. This is 55-mile-an-hour wind gust in uh, the North Shore area today, Cook County. And so it was just, I got a couple, like, real good blasts to the face today. It's almost like alpine conditions out there. Whew. Good to be here. Well, it's winter. And as we heard coming in to the episode today, winter is a powerful, beautiful thing. And it's not something that folks experience all over this country. That's right. Those were some... Beautiful words at the beginning, Matthew. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, that. Uh, so this poem was sent to me by one of our listeners who actually lives in Australia. <laughs> right. Yes. Right. So Ra- her name's Rachel, and mm. she sent us an email to uh, the podcast email and said, have you heard this? You know, and this this reminds me of the podcast. And Rachel has lived in Australia, she's originally from Wisconsin, mm. Has lived there for 12 years, got a husband, couple kids, and yeah. but she listens to the podcast to stay connected to winter, especially. Because you know it's summer down there right now. That's right, yes. And you know, she was kind of recalling to me, I mean, she said pretty much verbatim that she loves experiencing winter through the podcast and it brings her awareness to what she describes as the hemispheric differences in climate, which is just like, wow, it's a smart sounding thing, but it's really true. Mm-hmm. And just that beauty of winter that they, you know, she doesn't get down there even in the wintertime. Um, so the nostalgia of that, which I recall, you know, when I lived out in the Bay Area in California, uh, I missed the winter a lot. And this poem, I think, you know, which is sort of written from the vantage of California uh, is by a, a Minnesota author. Uh, Denez Smith, he's a black queer writer and performer, and this is his work, you know, Mm. as somebody living out on the West Coast, thinking about Minnesota winter. Yeah, nice. And then we heard from a voice that sounds certainly familiar to me and probably or hopefully some of our listeners as well. Chell Anderson. Yes, winter. Chell, well, we'll let her speak for herself, but... We're basically crossing the veil in this episode, Joe. And you know this veil all too well in its varying sizes. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Absolutely. So let's get into... You had a great conversation with Jelly Anderson about winter. Want to hear that, uh, Matthew, kind of the focus of today's episode, and we'll touch base after. Jelly Anderson... Can you remind our listeners who you are, in case they've forgotten? Uh, Well, I live here in this fantastic part of the world, uh, in northeastern Minnesota, and I've been living here since 1974 and enjoying it from the get-go. I have done a variety of different things as part of my career, um, the last of which was couple decades with the Minnesota Biological Survey, primarily working with uh, plants and plant communities, but I've had since 
childhood a very strong drive to know everything about the world around me. So when I think of, you know, I was out, Joe and I were out Thanksgiving Day, Mm -hmm. sitting on the ice, and I think I'm in the shelter, and I look down through the ice, which is clear still at this point, and there's this sort of this glow coming up with that bog stain, so it's really, it's all yellow and gold inside the ice house, and I see a (laughs) macro invertebrate, maybe a water boatman or something, just paddling along. (laughs) Yeah. Just as if it were any, you know, it's summer or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And it uh, occurred to me that well, it's, everything's still happening. Uh, so let's what's yeah. so what's yeah. going on? What what's is how does on? life change? Yeah. Does does life change mm. mm-hmm. in the lake mm-hmm. once the ice freezes, or does it stay the same? What are some of the differences mm-hmm. that occur? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll tell you the things I know. Great. Let's stick with that. <laughs> and let's recall that that's certainly a tiny bit of what there would be to know or tell. When I think about the world under the ice, of course, I think about cold, right? Because, you know, I've had my feet wet in the winter through the ice. I know how cold that is. So it's cold. And we know that water is going to be colder, closer to the surface of the bottom of the ice than it is at the very bottom. So the, the densest water is heaviest water and that happens when it's at 39 degrees so other than in a really shallow pond where it might totally freeze out in the winter lakes are going to have that 39 degree water down at the bottom and then as you come up closer and closer to the bottom of the ice it's going to get to right around 32 so that's a really narrow window of temperature that everything has to be able to have a way to survive with or actively live within temperature will matter, um, but also oxygen level will matter. So fish need to have oxygen throughout the winter, and oxygen is, oxygen production stops once the lake or the pond, you know, is frozen. If you have a lake and you cover it with ice, then the plants can't continue to produce oxygen because they're not growing. They're not giving off oxygen, so they're not putting in anything. And there's no exposure to the air above to mix in Oxygenate that oxygen water. in the water. So it's like a closed system at that yeah. point, and it's almost like a, a, a timed, like there, things were gonna, are going to change here. Yeah, they start to change right away. Um, and so, so that's a big reason why things have to slow down um, many things because they they don't want to run out right mm-hmm. and um, and they you don't want it to be depleted before things break out again in the spring um, yeah everybody's gonna lose in that scenario <laughs> yeah, right and it sometimes happens right I don't know if I mean not in our big lakes but small lakes that have fish or minnows of you know it's of different kinds, they freeze out and the fish all die, um, as well as other things um, when that happens. So it's not um, it's not an impossibility. But of course, the bigger body of water that you're in, and the better condition the water is in going into the freeze up, the more likely you are to to survive. So the other thing I think about when I think about under the ice is the lack of light. Um, you know, even in the summertime, if you go deep enough, it's going to be really dark, mm-hmm. <laughs> even in a really clear water lake, right? But then you put a layer of ice over it, and of course, 
some of the long wavelength light will will penetrate the ice, but that's only as long as it's open and bare. You know, other once it gets covered by snow, again, some light penetrates the snow, but more less and less and less. So you wouldn't have to go very deep as a human under the ice to really be in pitch darkness. I mean, there would be very little perceptible light to us because we don't live <laughs> in that environment. We didn't evolve in that environment. But other life that is aquatic, they have. Those that are active have a variety of um, ways that they um, manage with that lack of light. And that includes everything from those like the water boatman that you saw or the it might be predaceous diving beetles or giant water bugs or caddisfly larvae so um, that are moving around in the water column. And because they're ectotherms, their temperature is dictated by their surrounding temperature, in this case, the water, they're going to slow down. You know, they're not going to be able to move as quickly when it's under the ice in the winter. So you won't see them moving as fast, but they can move. Um, we get our water from a river and we have a hole in the ice that we put a cover on. And so it's insulated. So we don't have to chop it open every time we need to get water. There's nothing more fun than opening that cover. And, you know, nine times out of 10 or there isn't anything there, but every now and then you open the cover and ah. Uh, there it is. There's the giant water bug or the water scorpion or the all these caddisfly larvae with their little um, shelters that they make out of fine bits of vegetation. You know, they make their own shelters. Like, I, like are we thinking snail style here? Like yeah. a home? Yeah, it's a tube. You know, it's more of a tube. It's not as intricate in, in, a, in the dimensions as uh, and shape as a snail, but they glue together some glue together tiny pieces of vegetation, so little little bits of organic material. They glue it all together. Some glue together um, tiny tiny fragments of rock, so minerals, you know, tiny grains of minerals, and they glue those together. And they the the um, nymph stage, the aquatic stage of the of the caddisflies, live in the water like dragonflies. But then they eventually emerge and fly around, you know, up in our part of the <laughs> airy world. It's, you know, very typical to raise the lid and, ah, you know, there's some caddisflies moving around. Or even if you don't have that, those years when we have, you know, opportunities to go out on the clear, clear ice, like we've had, you know, last year in particular, but even this year, out on the lakes or on a river, um, oh, you know, if, if you can bundle up and so you can stay warm enough and you get down on the ice and just watch. I, I've seen so many things just going under the ice, not just fish, but I've watched giant water bugs just slowly making their way and they're crawling on the bottom of the ice. You know, wow. <laughs> yeah. their world is totally dipsy turvy, uh -huh. you know. Um, so, uh, you know, those are, those are just our little glimpses, right? into their world but um that's like the macro world right yeah yeah of those things that so those things get sluggish insects generally they just kind of slow down that's what they do so let's get into larger animals uh let's talk about frogs 
they do some pretty wild stuff, right? They have to find a place to live for the winter where they can breathe through their skin because they're not going to be out there. That's like some, some you know, X-Men <laughs> yeah. style right. adaptations, right? Like they, they, they otherwise breathe air. Right, yeah, yeah. But to survive the winter, they're under the water the whole time in yeah. some sort of altered consciousness. <laughs> right. So they're slowing way down too, but not as slowed down as another reptile that we can talk about, turtles. Uh, but the frogs, these aquatic frogs, they find places just slightly buried in the mud. So they need to have, they can't be way down where it's anoxic, where there is no air, or there, no oxygen. They have to be up very top part of the mucky bottom or they will wiggle um, in and insert themselves into some space like in the wa root wad of some sedges or um, uh, grasses you know along the edge of a water course you know but of course they have to pick carefully right because how deep will the ice go right so you're safest if you're pretty down pretty far right so you don't get froze out so still with the water there because it's the water that has the oxygen in it ever diminishing oxygen but that's where the oxygen is so you slow your metabolism way 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 down so you don't need as much and you're not being active generally so that diminishes how much oxygen you need and then yes that just amazing adaptation to bring the air in through the skin so turtles, I mentioned turtles. Turtles are have yet a whole, oh, I don't know what's the right word, different, just a different way of approaching it. So they too, they really are more like a true uh, terrestrial hibernator. So turtles will dig, go down into the muck, you know. And in the wilderness, what time of year? Just like, let's do a timeline what with this with do? the turtles. Maybe like we're talking uh, September, October. Yeah, it would kind of depend on the water, how cool, how quickly or when the water temperatures are really going up. Because as, again, as ectotherms, they have to, you know, thread that needle of when, you know, and they can be, you know, active up to a certain point. But once you get into that water, you know, 39 degrees or whatever, they, they probably have to be making up their spots, gotcha. you know, finding their places and, uh, and have, you know, being able to do the digging required and all. So they dig down into the muck and then, and they slow down even more than say the frogs, um, just so that their metabolism is just barely operating really. And then they have <laughs> this incredible means of breathing because otherwise, you know, they're like, the frogs, right? They're coming up and getting their air oxygen from the above the water. They have a what's called a cloaca, which is part of their reproductive and, and excretory system. And that is just an incredible mass of blood vessels. It's just highly charged with blood mm -hmm. vessels near the surface of the, of the cloaca. And they actually breathe through that over the course of the winter. So not through the skin of their, you know, the rest, the skin that otherwise would be exposed if they weren't closed up in their shell, or but just through the cloaca and this amazing net of blood vessels. So a less mature human may say that a turtle breathes through their butt. 
right. Well, that's a good way to say it. <laughs> what, which is, I mean, that is, yeah. I, that's incredible. Oh, that is incredible. Yeah. And, yeah. And so there, it's really this high, this highly charged point in their body is absorbing oxygen through these, these permeable membranes mm-hmm. yeah. in, in this part of their body and, mm-hmm. and surviving for, I mean, we talk about the winter Months. up here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> It's, I mean, they're spending two thirds of their, every year of their yeah, life. Yeah, exactly. Buried down in the mud, yeah. doing that, doing nothing right. but butt yeah. breathing. Yeah. Is there any wonder they want to get out? And <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Loll around on some logs and mm-hmm. rocks by Bliss. the time the summer comes. But they're, those are sort of like the sleepy, the sleepy <laughs> yeah. landscape. Right. That's yeah. the, when we think of, okay, everything yeah. goes to sleep in the winter. They're doing that. Yes. Yeah. But there are there's a lot more going on, right? Yeah. So, so what's what's going on there? With okay. The active. Yeah, folk. with the actives. All right. Well, so uh, one obvious thing to wonder about is fish. Of course. <laughs> yes. I mean, Joe's going <laughs> to want to make sure we talk about yeah, that. Yeah, for sure. And um, and who doesn't love to see fish? Whether you want to go out and fish for them. Um, I'm not a fisher person, but I love watching fish. I love snorkeling in the Boundary Waters and following fish around, hoping to get to see them, but sometimes, yeah, just being able to follow a fish around. I haven't been able to do that in the winter, so I have to rely on the reports of those who have um, had that opportunity or who have studied them. And so um, that's what I can report on, mm-hmm. not my own personal observations, other than the time I spent sitting in a fish house with my dad or my grandpa and watching the fish come up for their to bite mm-hmm. or struggling against the, the fishermen, mm-hmm. trying to pull them in mm-hmm. um, and getting away, <laughs> yeah, <darn laughs> disappearing it. into mm-hmm. the dark <laughs> mm-hmm. water. Um, but the, so fish, yeah, they fall into a couple of different categories. Fish that aren't predators on other fish, they are in, I would say, the sluggish category. Bummer for them. Yeah. (laughs) 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 Their behaviors or their capacities will be somewhat dependent on temperature of the water, but also oxygen level will matter. Sunfish, um, you know, minnows, small fish th- that aren't predatory on other fish, they're going to slow down. They're not going to be necessarily motionless over the entire winter, but they're not going to necessarily move around very much. They're going to uh, still stay in groups to some degree, according to what I've read. Now, for other fish, so, you know, the, what did you call them? Feeder Fish? Is that the well, term used? Or well, what? I was th- I was thinking of the minnows and things like oh, that. Oh yeah, yeah, Fish that yeah. feed the bigger fish. Yes, right. Yeah, uh, yeah. And then and then you get into the, the bigger yeah. angler-oriented mm-hmm. fish. You know, like mm-hmm. the northern yeah. the lake trout, yeah, smallmouth bass, walleye. Yeah. So they have a whole nother, you know, approach to things because they can't just <laughs> they can't just uh, kind of. Um, hang out so to speak right you know they in the it. water column for the entire winter yes they are obviously more active and they have some really um fascinating adaptations too and i'm sure you could find someone to talk way more in depth about this but for instance 
uh, fish that are active in the winter, they produce a whole nother, maybe not whole, but a majorly different set of enzymes in the winter than they do in the summer. Oh. You know, that's a whole life's work right there of mm-hmm. study, I, you know, uh, huge shift. So you're one, th- you're one sort of way in the summer in your life, and then somehow you become really different in the winter physiologically which is true for all these critters, right, right, that we've been talking about. But in this case, they're not really changing their behavior. It's just happening inside them. So their their behavior is not changing, but their chemistry or whatever has to change so to support yeah. maintaining their behavior through the wintertime. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Maintaining their capacity to prey on what the food they need. Yeah. So they sort of go through this change. Yeah. Uh, they don't know the difference. That's what they do. <laughs> so that they can keep going. Yeah. And is that is that pretty universal throughout most of those predatory fish? I think so. I think so. Um, just one degree or another. Yeah. Now, whether it's identical or I couldn't tell you that. But um, but that's a that's a pr- pretty profound shift that happens in enzyme production and exactly how that pertains to their activity in the cold water, you know, as cold as it is, versus summer temperatures, that's what it's all about, is being adapted to the cold water versus warm water. Now, some fish, like the lake trout, they, you know, or even uh, whitefish, they like to be in the cold water even in the summer, right? That's why you get them Uh way down in the deeper lakes, and and, the easier to fish for if they're up near the surface. <laughs> yeah. But even, as I understand it, even lake trout have to do some transitioning in this category of enzymes in order to, um, you know, be successful. All fish, including these active fish, they are also dealing with this whole oxygen issue, right? Mm. So, um, so lake trout is pretty ideally suited to deep lakes because cold water has higher oxygen content. So they're well adapted to overall to cold water and higher oxygen. But in a winter where the oxygen begins to be depleted to a great degree by the end, you know, later in the winter, then that's where they're going to go again is down into the deeper water because that's where the oxygen is going to be present. So they're going to spend as much time there as they can and then, you know, venture off forays to feed if they need to in shallower water where the oxygen may not be as plentiful. But, um, but so they're going to have to span, you know, those, uh, those differences in the water column in terms of oxygen level, as will all these other, the walleyes, the, the whitefish, the burbots, you know, mm-hmm. they, all, um, they all have to, um, yeah, work within this complex equation of temperature um, and oxygen levels, and then what their prey are doing and where they're finding to survive. If you're a tiny fish, and you're not a um, and you're not a predator, then you can spend time in a really shallow place that has low oxygen f- for quite a while compared to what, you know, a large fish that's um, trying to, you know, prey on other fish is going to be able to. Yeah, so the bigger you get, the <laughs> you know, it's not necessarily the better in this equation. You no. got to support this. Yeah, you got to support, support, support yourself. Support yourself, yeah. yeah. Um, 
I know another adaptation, walleye, I know they have a very pronounced adaptation to improve their vision as a predatory fish. Um, and this would be useful winter and summer, right? Because we've already talked about how even in the summer, if you go down into the water or you're out at night, I don't know. I mm -hmm. like to swim at night. You go down underwater at night. If it's clouding, you open your eyes. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's really dark. Well, that won't work if you're, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, a predatory fish. Um, they have, so there's a membrane that is on the back of the retina. And um, and in walleye, at least, and maybe other fish as well, it's incredibly white. And it's terrifically, compared to us, sensitive to light. So it's a way that their vision has evolved to these low light conditions that they experience all year long, um, including in the winter. And I've also read that that, that sensitivity is very not just it's it varies from season to season it also varies by individual so it's not uh, like you can say oh well this walleye has this kind of sen sensitivity you know ability to capture light with its eyes because they're not all identical which i think is really mm -hmm. is also quite fascinating yeah that's really <laughs> i mean it's really cool that there is even amongst fish areas of uniqueness yeah um that and i'm sure if we could hang out with them and understand their personalities <laughs> we'd probably find some unique personalities down there too yeah i imagine yeah but as tell as you sort of construct this you know vision in my mind i sort of go down to the bottom of a lake now and i think okay like there's we got some turtles we got some frogs we maybe have if, if there's some plant life, maybe there's some macroinvertebrates hanging in there swimming around, and then you sort of working my way up. I'm think I start to think about okay, what fish are down, fish are up. We got the little minnows, the you, know, you got the bigger fish who are sort of on the lookout for food, also sensing the oxygen throughout the winter. <laughs> And you work your way up, and and then you got some predators that may be coming in, like the otters. And mm -hmm. so there's a lot. I mean, this is a vibrant, active mm -hmm. world. Mm -hmm. And when we cut our auger hole mm -hmm. through that veil of ice mm -hmm. to interact with it, there's a lot happening down there. There's a, yeah, more than we can imagine, really. Yeah. And that we've just been talking about the things that we can see. But winter, I think, imagination is really, really uh, uh, useful. And the more we learn, for me, the more I learn about um, the lives that are part of the world that I'm in with, um, the easier it is for me to conjure all that um, whenever mm -hmm. <laughs> I need to. <laughs> and appreciate it all. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Chell, thanks for being on today. Very welcome. I am going to be thinking about you this weekend when I'm out in the ice. <gasps> right. And probably some turtle butts. <laughs> and uh, uh, I hope to see you out there. All right. Yeah.
You know what's interesting, Matthew, is to hear about winter and to be in winter, this severe winter we talked about at the beginning, with snow blowing in our face, your hours of shoveling that you had to do just to get here to have this conversation today, is that hearing about winter makes me want to get out and experience winter. And we got a lot of it left, don't we, man? Right. That's such a unique thing. Like when I'm in a canoe, I don't think about how I want to, I want more summer necessarily. I want more canoeing, but that's me. That's me. I certainly do. (laughs) (laughs) Can't get enough. But yes, you are a unique human. (laughs) Well, I love winter. I love being on the ice, ice fishing, getting out to the ice spot. Something you and I have talked about recently, Matthew, was the fact some of these lakes I used to fish around the Gunflint Trail frequently that are easy to get to. They're not in the boundary waters. They're they're near the edge of the wilderness. But you can drive right up to them, basically. I haven't been going to those lakes as much anymore. And when I do, it hasn't been quite as fun as it used to be. But what's fun is to get into the boundary waters. Like That has actually become an important part of the process for ice fishing, for the entertainment value, basically, is... Getting in there. Away from the road, away from the entry point parking lot, away from people. Even if there's some of the lakes that we go to have quite a bit of people that go to them. I don't think we've been on a lake all winter that has we've been the sole occupant of that lake. But they're massive lakes. Right. And it's just the part, the, the work of getting in there mm-hmm. has become an important part of the process. Even the fun, actually. Well, speaking of getting in there and ice fishing, I got a question for you as my angler friend. Okay. So Chell was talking about how l- later in winter, the oxygen-rich uh, water is at the bottom. So does that mean we should be fishing deeper for lake trout in March? Or what? are they still coming up to feed? What what What's your thoughts on that? Right. It's... We have either just by default and happenstance been fishing typically deeper in March than we do early in January, but it's different lakes that we've been going to. You know, last March we were fishing in 60 feet of water, 70, I think where Lake Trout Redemption happened. And so that just occurred because of the lake we were on. You know, we fish sometimes in eight feet of water in January, catch big lake trout, 17, maybe the average would be like 15, 17 feet probably. And actually, you know, another interesting thing to think about in this context, Matthew, is one time I was talking with a longtime resident of the Gunflint Trail, and they were telling me that in March, sometimes in deeper water, they'll fish for lake trout like right underneath the ice or like five feet, I mean, put your lure or bait underneath the ice about five feet down, if that makes sense. And this was in deeper water. I tried that one time on Seagull. I was fishing in 80 feet of water or something like that. And you want to usually kind of work the water column or be down toward the bottom. But I listened to this advice or took this advice and I had my this white jig with a white twister tail on it, probably a few feet beneath the ice and hooked into a Monster lake trout. And so I'm not sure, based on comparison, if the success rate diminishes 
in that level of water in March only because we're not fishing there anymore. Well, like true scientists, my friend, we should come up with some hypotheses yes. and test our theories. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, maybe even this weekend. We'll, we'll be doing some of that uh, this winter, earlier in March and different times of uh, late winter, if you will. So we'll, we'll report back on that. But what we can confirm with certainty is that fishing deeper in March, late winter, has proven to be successful. Indeed. So that's the early formation of data collection. Ooh, wow, we sound so smart. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I want to be like Chell. Uh, me too, that's why. <laughs> I'm trying to. <laughs> Observation and imagination is the lesson from Chell Anderson today. Well, one thing you said, Matthew, there is more winter yet to come. We'll be on the road coming up for parts of March. We'll be, as we heard in the last episode, over at Canucopia, but we're also planning some other outings, getting into the Boundary Waters pretty deep. We've got uh, some camping things planned. So winter, there's still plenty of winter coming our way. Plenty of winter, plenty of snow, and plenty of ice. All right, I'm headed back uh, to the driveway. I know it's going to be drifted over. Probably just going to get another huge blast of snow in my face. Yes, I love winter. Let me say it again. I love winter. It's a heck of a sound effect. I just sing when I paddle. Feeling not thinking if the strokes are true. We're going to get through to the other side. Out in the night, the waves beat the shore. You can hear them pounding, you can hear them roar. Rule me, rock me in my dreams. You can roll me, rock me in my dreams. So I like to sing, I love to dance. I play the fool if I got the chance. All around the campfire light. All around. Campfire light all round, all round, all round the campfire light. 